This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, sitting in for Josh King, here's Jeff Smith. Hi, I'm Jeff Smith, a professor of public policy at the New School in New York City. And I'm filling in for Josh this week, an action-packed week of political intrigue. Between Senator Ted Cruz's filibuster theatrics, the government shutdown, the Obamacare rollout, and the looming debt ceiling crisis, there's a lot to talk about. And today we're hosting three reporters who've been right in the thick of it. Politico's Ben White, BuzzFeed's Matt Zeitlin, and the Washington Examiner's Tim Carney. How will the shutdown and the prospect of debt default affect the continuing tepid economic recovery? What populations and what industries will be hurt the most? Will there be a backlash? And if so, where will it come from? And does this series of events foreshadow a broader partisan shift? I know that I've already seen the effects of the shutdown personally. Yesterday, when uh, most of my students had a paper due, they weren't able to retrieve any data from .gov websites and then emailed me frantically asking how they could handle it. I asked them if they'd ever heard of something called a library. But enough glibness for now. The shutdown's having real effects on real people. And today, Matt Zeitlin will explain the shutdown's economic impact and the financial implications of default, globally and locally. Ben White will discuss the politics of the shutdown, from Wall Street to Capitol Hill, with an eye towards what happens next. And Tim Carney will take a deep dive into the future of the Republican Party and the conservative movement more broadly to share his thoughts on possible shifts in party alignment that may result from this showdown. We'll dig into all that and more this week on Polyoptics. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS. So we're going to talk about the shutdown and the looming debt crisis uh, this week. We're lucky to have Matt Zeitlin, economics reporter from BuzzFeed, and Ben White, who covers finance for Politico. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks sure. A lot. Matt, let's start with you. Who's being hurt the most by this shutdown? Well, right now, it's probably the 800,000 federal employees who can't go to work, um, who are furloughed from their jobs. I mean, they are, they're not working, they're not getting paid, and so... That's by far the most immediate effect. And then, you know, any kind of knock-on effect from there, that's probably largely in the kind of D.C. area, but anywhere where there's federal employees not working, there are federal employees not spending. So that's the most immediate economic effect that's, being, that's been felt since, you know, midnight on, on Tuesday. And people are talking a lot about national parks and monuments, but what about people, for instance, on Social Security disability? I've heard that uh, that's going to be treated differently than, than typical Social Security checks. Um, well, stuff like that is kind of more on autopilot. It's kind of the WIC program, the women, infant, women, infants, and children. Those payments, those are kind of being affected. But kind of the automated entitlement spending, things like Social Security, is kind of more or less self-funding and can work through a shutdown, at least for a few days, without kind of being affected. It's really the federal employees right now. And then things like the National Institutes of Health, like they had to shut down clinical trials and not let anyone new in. It's stuff like that that's being affected in kind of these first few days of a shutdown. As it goes on longer, though, uh, the kind of preparations people have to keep these kind of things running for a few days will run out and will kind of be in uncharted territory. I know that purchasing, federal purchasing, is a very elongated process. And from what I've read, there's going to be huge disruptions to federal contracting and and purchasing processes uh, if this goes on more than a week or two. Is that your sense of things as well, Matt? Yeah, I mean, that sounds right. Uh, No one really has a plan for the government to kind of be in shutdown and all these employees being furloughed for more than a a few days. I mean, 
uh, governs a huge portion of the economy. And so things like defense contractors, I know, you know, people who, are, who make helicopters and stuff are probably not are probably looking at this and are not too happy and hope it gets resolved fairly quickly. So, Ben, let's bring you in. Is this is this actually going to save any money uh, for the government? To- no. Why? No, Tell it'll us probably why not. it'll probably wind up costing the government more money. I mean, it did the last time around in '96. I think a couple billion dollars, uh, because it costs a lot to shut all this stuff down and then reopen it again. Uh, the parks, the NIH, uh, anything that's discretionary that gets shut down. There are costs involved in mothballing it and then reopening it. And then you've got to pay these people, theoretically pay all this 800,000 folks who are furloughed uh, back pay. Uh, and it, you, know, you have to process all that. There's paychecks that didn't go out that have to go out. There's costs involved in all that stuff. So ultimately, it, you know, it'll add incrementally to the deficit. It won't reduce the deficit. So if there are small government conservatives who are thrilled about shutting down the government and think it uh, you know, will save us money over the long term, that's uh, incorrect. It will do the opposite of that. And potentially could cost even more indirectly, I guess, if it affects interest rates. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we're getting more into the uh, ballpark of impacts of debt ceiling crisis. Uh, if you're talking about interest rates and stock prices going down and consumer confidence and business confidence, all of those much larger macroeconomic impacts. Uh, some of them we'll we'll see. We have seen. We saw some drops in the Dow as this thing started. What's, what's uh, the Dow down? Five or six percent from its peak? No, it's not down that much yet. A couple of percent, I oh, think. Okay. Uh, but it was coming down from a really high level. Um, and the, the stock market is still fine. Uh, I don't think you'll see any kind of major move in stocks or a move up in interest rates uh, unless we get closer to the debt ceiling deadline of October 17th without a shutdown, the shutdown ending and a plan in place to raise the debt ceiling. Then you're talking about really serious macroeconomic impacts. Right now, they're relatively small from the shutdown. They're important to those who are affected by them and the D.C. metro area, but larger economy is not really impacted until you get a debt ceiling crisis. So obviously, this has knocked the Obamacare rollout off the front page. And some have argued that it might be part of an overarching strategy to sort of undermine Obamacare implementation, which, of course, relies on lots of people signing up uh, through the healthcare exchanges. What are your thoughts on the degree to which this is affecting the Obamacare rollout, Matt? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to tell for a few reasons. One is that the funding for implementation is not one of these kind of annual appropriations things that gets cut off in a shutdown. I mean, but on the other hand, you would want, you know, Health and Human Services and all the kind of the federal employees that are overseeing implementation and these navigators that are helping out individual states set up their exchanges. You'd want all those, if you wanted it to go out as perfectly as possible, you would want all those people to be ready. That's definitely not happening right now. But it's really hard to kind of tease out the slowdowns and kind of frustrations people have signing up for the exchanges. How much of that is due just to the fact that a lot of people are trying to get on this system all at the same time? And how much of that is due to kind of it being degraded by the shutdown. Right. And from a conservative standpoint, I mean, if you wanted the story the last few days to be about how problematic the rollout of Obamacare is, and a lot of them wanted that, uh, you would have some of that, but it's completely washed away by the government shutdown. And uh, from what every poll I've seen indicates, the Republicans get the lion's share of the blame for that. And all we're talking about is the shutdown, not the fact that Obamacare is having this rocky rollout that every conservative uh, talked about. This is going to be a nightmare disaster when it gets rolled out. It's a little bit of that is true. I don't think it's entirely true at all. But if you wanted that to be the dominant story, the troubled rollout of Obamacare, it's not now. And so do you guys buy this theory, this theory that, you know, conservatives watched Social Security be enacted in 1935, now one of the most popular federal programs, watched Medicare uh, be enacted in 1965, again, now 
overwhelmingly popular and fear the potential popularity of another big entitlement program that uh, people kind of get used to and sort of end up liking. I do uh, buy that argument to a certain degree. And I think it's particularly true if you look at the demographics of the Tea Party, you look at the demographics of, you know, some conservative, very red districts. There are middle to low income folks in those districts who could stand to benefit from uh, the Affordable Care Act and see their health care costs go down. And the more that they realize that and take advantage of it, you would think the less they would oppose it and think it's this awful government takeover destroying the economy. So, I mean, I think there's two strains. I think there is a very uh, you know, legitimate ideological opposition to the government taking this big of a role in the healthcare industry. Uh, you know, I think those folks are completely on the level saying they don't like Obamacare. They think it'll be bad for employers, bad for the economy. But I do think there is also legitimacy to the fear, the fear argument that there are a lot of Republicans who think this is going to be really popular in a few years, and a lot of the folks who are the backbone of our party are going to take advantage of it and are not, uh, you know, going to be so thrilled with us anymore. So I think that that's a real thing. That's happening. So you guys have probably been watching all these photo ops over the last couple of days, the blame game back and forth. Who's getting blamed? You know, who does the public really believe is responsible for this? And do you think the public's right? Do you think this polling that we're seeing uh, early on is correct? Well, I think a lot of what you're seeing is kind of two things. One is just kind of overall frustration with the process. I mean, for a very long time, the approval ratings for Congress as a whole, not Republicans or Democrats necessarily, have been in the low teens. Somewhere between syphilis and gonorrhea. Yeah, Yeah. John McCain says it's only, you know, close family members and staffers who approve (laughs) of what Congress is doing. Uh, So I think that's kind of the dominant trend in public opinion, and and I don't blame them. If you don't pay super close attention to what's going on on the Hill, you see total dysfunction. Uh, I think in as much as one group of people is being blamed, I think it's the House Republicans who already have had you know, fairly low approval ratings, even compared to other parts of Congress, who are uh, getting blamed for this. And that's because they have been the loudest in insisting on a shutdown. Right. And the, the weird thing about this is that there are sort of two completely separate worlds of public opinion. There's national public opinion that you know takes in red state, blue state, everyone. Uh, and that in that America, uh, the shutdown is widely opposed. Uh, and if you ask people if they would like to shut down the government in order to block Obamacare or to not raise the debt limit, overwhelmingly people say, no, of course not. Even the f- folks who don't like Obamacare very much and don't like the idea of raising the debt limit uh, all that much uh, say, you know, you've, you've got to do it and you shouldn't shut down the government over this stuff or risk a debt default over Obamacare. But if you go to the districts uh, represented uh, where the Tea Party members come from in red states, they overwhelmingly are for the shutdown. They're overwhelmingly opposed to Obamacare. They very much like what's happening right now. They don't believe uh, we would default if we didn't raise the debt limit. Uh, and even if we did, it's it's worse to borrow more money. Uh, so you've got that 35 to 40 uh, group of Republicans in the House who are Tea Party uh, folks uh, who Boehner is catering to in this process who absolutely feel like public opinion is on their side. And they're not wrong about that in their district. Uh, the question uh, for all of this is at what point does Boehner realize he's got to cut those people loose and end this uh, in order to not damage the Republicans' brand nationally too much over the long term? So you don't think there's any chance that the constituents in those districts, you know, and I know there was a profile of Hal Rogers, the House Appropriations Chair uh, in the New York Times um, that I think Timothy Egan wrote. He profiled Owsley County, one of the poorest counties in the country, uh, where almost half of the people are on food stamps. Uh, And he 
said that this one was one of the cons- most conservative counties, not just in Kentucky, but in the country. Do you think there's any chance that the constituents in a place like that, like Hal Rogers District, start to maybe rethink, you know, their their opposition to uh, to some of these programs if they're not, for example, Matt, getting their wick? Uh, I I don't think so. I mean, it if, if that were true, you probably would have seen it by now. I mean, elements of Obamacare have been in force for a while. Uh, there were things like the increase in food stamps appropriations and eligibility that were part of the stimulus. And those have remained to be very, very unpopular among Republican voters, especially among voters in these kind of districts that are electing the most conservative Republicans to the House. I mean, no one, the debate over, you know, expanded government versus smaller government has been going on since the day Obama was inaugurated. And I don't really see anyone on the Republican side changing their mind. Yeah. And then, I mean, the Hal Rogers example is interesting. I mean, he's one person in the House who's argued for slightly higher uh, discretionary spending levels and I don't think is a guy who's really uh, in favor of the shutdown strategy that's going on. Now, he's been a good soldier so far and has towed the party line and uh, the Boehner line, but, uh, you know, uh, partly because of the demographics of his district and his, you know, long-serving uh, tenure uh, and belief in a functional government. Uh, you know, I, I was at a, a breakfast with Steny Hoyer, did a breakfast with Steny Hoyer, the other day where he read uh, comment after comment from Hal Rogers about how, you know, the sequester is stupid and the spending levels are not quite where they should be. And I mean, there are some folks in the Republican Party who feel that way. Uh, So far, they've very few of them have made their views known and have pushed the needle of the sort of center of the Republican Party away from the Tea Party folks. But I mean, those folks are there. So to what do you attribute this behavior on the part of voters? Do you think it's because of the so-called filter bubble by which they're only getting information from certain sources and so they're kind of maybe not aware of of, uh, some of the ways that some programs could benefit them? Or do you think it's just simply um, such strong, passionate opinions that uh, regardless of the amount or nature of information coming in, they couldn't be moved? Well, I generally don't like to assume that people have the opinions they do because they have less information or, you know, don't really understand their self-interest. I mean, this is not the first time that Republicans and conservatives have been opposed to expansions of the social safety net. I do think one interesting thing is largely a demographic. Uh, Republican voters tend to be older and older voters tend to have their health care situation more or less taken care of, you know, by the federal government. But still, what we see with Obamacare, you know, there were cuts to Medicare that were basically used to fund expansion of health care for younger people. And from the perspective of an older Republican voter, that's a, a demographic redistribution that, you know, doesn't obviously or immediately benefit them. So I think that's perfectly reasonable. it's perfectly reasonable to be opposed to something like Obamacare. And, and you get it a really sort of central paradox of the Republican platform right now, which is so many of them clamoring, so many of the... House Tea Party Caucus in particular clamoring for entitlement reform, but the national Republican base predominantly, you know, being so much older than the Democratic base and being the people who would disproportionately suffer from any type of entitlement reform unless you delay it 10 or 15 years. Well, that's precisely what's happened in even kind of the most far reaching Republican plans for entitlement reform. Uh, Paul Ryan's budget, of course, is the best example that it had kind of a phase in for these cuts to Medicare and then reversing what Paul Ryan was thinking in kind of 2004 and 2005, his budget, one of his budgets had no plan for any type of reform of Social Security, which is kind of the most obvious, you know, way that we redistribute money from kind of the young and working to the old and retired. 
Right. And I think it's also a reason that, uh, you know, they, they talk a lot about wanting entitlement reform. Uh, and when it gets down to sitting down at the table to negotiate some kind of deal that includes entitlement reform and maybe for Democrats some more revenue, uh, they're not so eager to actually do that uh, because it is harder to sell any kind of trims to Medicare to a lot of their voters. Uh, and, you know, they can talk about it a lot but when it comes down to actually doing it. It, it doesn't seem to happen. Or it may just be that for some of these voters, it doesn't have anything to do with opinions on economic issues <laughs> mm-hmm. at all, but that they are making rational calculations, making rational calculations that other issues like, you know, having like the Second Amendment or sure. opposition to abortion yeah. just may be more important to them than a position which might benefit them materially in some small way on economics. Absolutely. They just associate Obama and Democrats with taking away their guns and with abortion on demand and, you know, many other policies that are uh, anathema to, you know, social conservatives and some of the economic benefits they might accrue based on de- more democratically uh, associated policies are just nowhere near enough to wipe that out. So let's talk about people on the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, people that you cover and have covered for a while, uh, Ben. You're Wall Street. About rich people? I'm talking about rich people. I'm talking about Wall Street, uh, which gave you know very substantially against President Obama in the 2012 election, um, which I think interrupted a trend that had been going on for about 20 years. Ever since Bill Clinton in 92, Wall Street had gravitated a little bit more towards giving to Democrats. Yeah. People like Bob Rubin mm-hmm. uh, had helped in that process. But- um, in the aftermath of the 2012 election, now it seems that a lot of Wall Street is sort of siding with Obama and saying, hey, the Tea Party years are right. clearly to blame for this. Um, give me your thoughts on that, as well as kind of the longer term political implications. Right. I mean, it's it's certainly true that Wall Street you know, went for Obama in 08 over McCain and then uh, switched back to Romney, who clearly was of Wall Street and one of Wall Street's own. Uh, Despite the fact that Wall Street really... No one had, uh, I think, more to thank the administration for given right. the bailout. Yeah, sure, there, and, there was that argument that they're, you know, sort of uh, turning their back on the, the folks yeah. who, who saved their bacon. Uh, yeah, but the, the one, know, the one percent had a pretty good four years. They did, they did. But what they wanted uh, was Bush era tax rates to remain low. They wanted capital gains rates to remain low. They wanted, uh, you know, carried interest for private equity guys. We don't get, need to get too deep in the weeds on all that stuff. But there were a lot of policies that Romney was for that Wall Street was for, and wanted to see happen. But uh, what you see now on Wall Street is a sense that the party that they once knew, the Republican Party they once knew that was a party of you know low tax rates, uh, low regulation, uh, while that still exists, the much more dominant uh, strain now is you know reduce government spending at all costs if it means shutting it down, if it means uh, risking a debt default, uh, sort of an anti-government, uh, anti-business-as-usual uh, strain of the Republican Party they just don't recognize and think is dangerous uh, and are afraid of. And so they are more inclined to, you know, be supportive of Democrats right now. They're all the CEOs were just down in Washington to uh, go to the White House and then speak out a little bit on the need to raise the debt ceiling. The problem is really the center of the Republican Party right now just doesn't care what they say. Yeah. And there was a good Politico piece about this this morning. I think uh, MJ Lee yeah. wrote it basically saying that, hey, you know, these guys have independent fundraising sources right. now. They can go directly to voters. They've got places like Heritage Action or the exactly. Club for Growth or right. sort of non-Wall Street sources, interest groups that will facilitate their fundraising. And they're no longer dependent at all 
uh, on on contributions from the finance industry that right. Republicans once were pretty reliant upon. Right. I mean, they like to get them. They're helpful to get them. And I don't think uh, some of those Republicans want to completely alienate Wall Street. But you're right. I mean, there's plenty of very deep-pocketed conservative groups and, uh, you know, these uh, special action committees now, Senate Conservative Fund and others who can pump tons of money into conservative campaigns. They don't have to worry that Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley doesn't like them. And in fact, that may be a talking point for them. It, it, on precisely, the right. I mean, take yeah. a guy like Tom Massey right. in... Kentucky or Justin Amash, Amash uh, yeah. in Michigan, you know, who sort of make their bones off the right. fact that they hate big government, but they hate big finance just as much. Exactly. It's just the, you know, the populist strain of conservatism now that uh, links kind of the Occupy Wall Street movement to a part of the, the Tea Party movement in their opposition to, uh, to Wall Street and Wall Street bailouts. Uh, so that's, that's the world we live in now. You draw that connection, and uh, you know a lot of people two years ago first started making that connection when Occupy came on the scene. Do you put any stock in the theory that at some point there could be a partisan realignment or sort of new alignment that pairs some of the Occupy types with some of the Tea Party types who are united around economic populism? What are your thoughts, Matt? Well, I don't think you'll see like a big change in kind of the uh, makeup of the two parties. I think what you do see and what you have seen since Obama was elected is that on very specific issues, you can get Republicans and Democrats who tend to be on the farther left and right side of their respective caucuses to agree on financial reform issues. Uh, a really good example of this is the audit of the Federal Reserve. This is a piece of legislation that passed, I think, in the first Congress that Obama was president for. It was opposed by kind of the leadership of certainly of the Democratic Party. It was heavily opposed by the Federal Reserve itself. But you had kind of Alan Grayson, this very, very liberal uh, congressman from Florida, supporting it. And you had Ron Paul, of course, the libertarian Republican from Texas, supporting it. And it passed. And it's one of those things that if you poll, it's very, very popular. But among kind of the leadership of both parties and in the White House and the Treasury and the Fed was seen as kind of kooky. But it was incredibly popular. And I think another example of this is on certain financial reform issues. You have Sherrod Brown of Ohio, very populist, liberal Democrat. And David Vitter, a conservative kind of populist Republican from Louisiana, supporting higher capital levels, you know, basically capital levels for banks, which is something that make banks more stable and less profitable. So on those issues, I think you're definitely going to see these kind of Republican, Democratic, bipartisan groups, bipartisan groups for him, but not the type of bipartisanship that, you know, that you could build a party around? Yeah. No, no. Movement, probably not. Yeah. Although, it, although there have been some other examples, been, like drones and course, other national security say, issues. Yeah, and foreign involvement in foreign involvement. Syria. That and, and even the criminal and justice right. reform. You know, Now that Rand Paul has sort of like made that a, a big issue and has spent a, the last few weeks uh, before the shutdown, before all this uh, came right. about, talking about elimination of mandatory minimums for some crimes. So there are some interesting possibilities here. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And Rand Paul could be writing a column for the nation on that sort of thing. I mean, it's it, there is... Is a uh, an overlap there, and and you obviously saw it on Syria, and you see it on the NSA. I mean, there was the establishment conservatives and establishment uh, Democrats who always agreed that it, it's good what the NSA is doing, the CIA is doing. We need to protect the country, and if we lose some civil liberties, well, so be it. But uh, there's much more powerful uh, wings on both sides now who can raise a lot of noise about that stuff and really put pressure on uh, the kind of establishment types to rein in some of that stuff on a civil liberties argument. So let's go back to money. And let's talk a little bit about the impending crisis of, of potential default. Um, Matt, tell us what this looks like. Well, that's what's so scary about breaching the debt ceiling is that nobody really knows what it will look like. 
Um, we do know that the government, in some sense, will run out of money on October 17th or 18th, which means that they will not be able to issue new debt to kind of pay for the function of the government. They will still be able to bring in money through taxes, but day to day, we don't really know what the government will be able to pay for and what they won't. And the reason people are really, really scared about this in kind of in the White House, in the Treasury, in the Fed, and on Wall Street is that kind of the inviability and safety of the debt the U.S. government issues, Treasury bond is kind of the cornerstone of the financial system. And then no one, no one who works with this stuff ever thinks that the safety of those instruments would be impaired or that the U.S. federal government would ever miss a payment. It's something that's literally never happened before. So it is possible that we go through the debt ceiling and nothing too bad happens, but it's possible something really, really bad happens. And it's that unpredictability that freaks people out. Right. And it's also possible that nothing really, really bad happens for a few days. Um, and then you get conservatives coming out and say, look, uh, we didn't let, raise the debt ceiling and blood is not running in the streets. Um, but you know, it will occur after a few days of incoming receipts not being able to match outgoing uh, requirements that we miss a Social Security payment, we miss uh, any number of uh, programs the government needs to fund, and then possibly an interest payment on existing debt. Uh, and then you see interest rates skyrocket, and you see the stock market crash, and you see confidence plummet, and you see you know our little barely moving economy go to zero or negative again. And it, you know that may not happen. It may take a long time for that to happen. But the point. Is why on earth would you ever risk uh, that happening? It makes absolutely no sense to put yourself in a situation that you don't need to be in and has never been experienced before. It'll be really interesting to see how global markets react in particular because for foreign investors, uh, the United States, you know, T-bills have right. always been, you know, that when there's a flight to quality, That's they, pa- they right. pack right into, into the, that instrument. And so when that is seen as, as finally a non-secure instrument, where is the flight to quality? Yeah, there's not a whole lot of uh, great options out there. I mean, you're not going to go to European. I think mostly level. canned goods and ammo at that point. <laughs> exactly, right? Gold. Gold will have a field day. Bitcoin. Does this Bitcoin. potentially... Bitcoin, yeah. Does this potentially accelerate a move away from the dollar as sort of the global reserve currency? Well, it's that's the type of thing, you know, it's been the global reserve currency since the end of World War II. It's literally the cornerstone of the global financial system. And... It's one of those things where you don't, if you're going to make that move, you want to do it in kind of a deliberate, considered way. Not much will freak out because the government missed its first interest payment ever. Again, I think probably not, but it's one of those things where do you really want to find out? Yeah, exactly. And it's it wouldn't be helpful to the dollar. And we, you know, we we have this professed policy, a strong dollar policy. It's actually, you know, helpful if we devalue the dollar a little bit and uh, you know boost our our exports. But what you don't want to see is a complete collapse in the dollar and the, you know, getting rid of the benefits of having a global reserve currency and being the safe haven, uh, which is very beneficial to us in the long term. So any drop in the dollar, uh, if it's very intense and deep, uh, would be have, give lasting damage. And the, I mean, the real problem here, I think, is uh, even if it's brief uh, flirtation with breaking the limit or even breaking the limit and then we fix it, is that you've then uh, created some risk around U.S. Treasuries where it didn't exist before and you get slightly higher interest rates long term that, while not cataclysmic, are certainly not helpful. And the last thing a slow-growing economy needs when the Fed is doing everything it possibly can to to keep rates down is this self-inflicted wound creating institutionalized higher interest rates. You talk to a lot of businessmen, Ben. Unfortunately, I do. (laughs) Do you feel like this is, you know, I mean, Republicans have talked for a while about, you know, Obamacare is is threatening Mm -hmm. uh, business investment. Democrats have talked for a while about Republican intransigence 
in coming to some grand bargain as threatening business investment or preventing it. Which story do you think is more true based on the business people you talk to? Um, I think the the latter story is more true. I think most have kind of made their peace with Obamacare. Uh, nobody, well, some people are thrilled with it. You know, liberals are thrilled with it. But there are plenty of conservative Chamber of Commerce type uh, businessmen and, and uh, companies who don't love the idea that they're going to be forced to insure everyone and incur higher costs. But I think they've kind of dealt with that and realized that that's going to be part of doing business going forward and have made their peace with it. What really freaks them out is the idea that a small group in the House could grab government to a halt and then could create a default and could really screw up the economy and uh, collapse demand. I mean, what all companies want is just to be able to sell stuff to people, want people to have money in their pocket, want the government to be working. Uh, they're not ideologues. They're not getting up every day saying, I hate Obamacare. We got to stop Obamacare. They just want the country to work properly and uh, economic growth to continue. So the scariest thing is uh, intransigence and a failed government and a debt ceiling crash. So your colleague at Politico, Jake Sherman, had a piece up, I think, yesterday, which which uh, sort of floated a grand bargain right. and, and talked about some uh, leaders, House leaders um, on the Republican side, saying that that's probably the best way to get out of this sort of box that they've got themselves in is to do something so big that maybe the right flank or the, sort of the rump group of Tea Party well, guys so aren't terrifying. paying attention right. to, the, to the fine print. I don't know. Then Josh Barrow at Business Insider came out and basically said that's the stupidest thing he's ever heard. <laughs> yeah. And that if they can't get the tiniest things right, how are they going to get a grand bargain? How are they going to yeah. get a grand bargain? I mean, I, 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 Jake's reporting is is solid, and I think there are those, including Boehner, who want that, who think that's the way out. You know, that uh, they could sort of slip in a debt limit increase and reopening the government as long as they get a few things on entitlements and uh, you know, chain CPI or some uh, other elements of stuff that's been on the table from Obama before. None of it would be new stuff. Um, I, I think there's very little chance that uh, you could cobble something together that could pass. And anything that's going to be grand bargain-like uh, and that includes entitlement reform is going to have to include new revenues. Now, maybe the president has said it doesn't have to be higher marginal rates, you could be closing loopholes, but getting anything that's more revenue through the U.S. House of Representatives is almost impossibility at this point. So I, it's just very hard for me to see. It's a nice idea uh, for Boehner to say, let's get a grand bargain to get out of this, but getting from A to B is really hard. Yeah, and I also think this is probably the third time where we've run up against some kind of deadline and the way people want to get out of it is by having a grand bargain. I mean, the funny thing right now is that this is Obama's original plan in 2011. Right. He did not insist on a clean debt limit increase, even though everyone knew that the debt limit would be breached in early August because he wanted, he saw it as an opportunity to have a grand bargain. That didn't work because there just wasn't the legislative wherewithal to do it. And we ran up right, we ran up as close to the debt limit as we've ever been and passed this kind of very cobbled together, slightly mindless cuts to the government that I don't think either side was very happy with. Duct taped might be. Yeah, and I think Obama today says that was one of the kind of the signal failures of his presidency, and a lot of liberals certainly agree with that. And I see Boehner kind of doing the exact same thing. He wants, he sees this as one way out, but has. There's just no record of kind of crisis-driven grand bargaining work. If that worked, we would have had one already. Right, and the idea that somehow between now, the beginning of October, and October 19th or wherever we really have to raise the debt limit, we're going to have a comprehensive tax reform plan in place uh, on top of entitlement reform. I mean, it's just absolutely insanely crazy that, that to think that that could happen. I mean, it's just the product is not ready yet uh, to be delivered by that date. It just isn't there. 
I know Dave Camp's been working on it. The, working the on it hard, of, and, yeah. and Bach is working on it hard, and they've got stuff. I mean, there's stuff ready, deliverables that are ready, but it's not a, a comprehensive package. I mean, maybe maybe I'm too cynical, and maybe they could magically put it together, but I don't see it. Might might this not be the best time to do it over the next two weeks? If I, I saw a congressman from Rhode Island, David Cicilline, uh, propose to ban all lobbyists from... <laughs> from Capitol Hill while the right, government right. shut down. So maybe this would be the ideal time to, to finally to do s- tax reform. Slip the grand bargain together and do <laughs> tax reform. I mean, you know, uh, awesome if they could figure out a way to do that. I think tax reform would be bullish for the economy. I think taking the debt limit off the table and uh, reopening government, all these things would be boosts to the economy. But even without lobbyists, there are plenty of vested political interests on the Hill that uh, is going to make this stuff very hard to do. Don't you believe in no labels, Ben? <laughs> I, I love the idea of no labels and, uh, you know, whatever uh, purple strategies or whatever, you know, kind third, of third way, way. Americans <laughs> elect. I, all of it sounds great, but uh, I, you know, just reopen the government, raise the debt limit, and live to fight another day on the other stuff. Yeah, I think only like two or three people came to uh, Rand Paul's coffee this morning. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Were they all relatives of his? <laughs> his guy from Kentucky, Tom Massey, came. Oh. And Tom Carper came, uh, a okay. Democrat from Delaware, um, who's crossed the aisle quite a bit in the past. Yeah. In any case, I really appreciate you guys coming on and sharing your wisdom <laughs> on uh, the shutdown, the, the crisis, and uh, and what we're going to see going forward. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Hi, this is Jeff Smith, professor of public policy at the New School in New York City, filling in for Josh King this week on polyoptics. We've got a special guest from the Washington Examiner, senior political columnist Tim Carney, joining us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Polyoptics, Tim. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So it's been a chaotic week on Capitol Hill. Yes, a chaotic couple weeks since the the Ted Cruz talkathon and now the government shutdown. So lots of fun going on here. So why don't we start with this? Give me your thoughts on how we got here. So the Republican Party really did change after and because of the Tea Party. What happened was there used to be a a Republican Party that had a, a hierarchy, that had party leadership, where the business lobby, what we call K Street, that's sort of the corridor of lobbyists here, the, that K Street and the party leadership sort of kept the party in line. And the the business model of the Republican Party was that in a lot of conservative districts and states, candidates would run promising some impossible conservative thing, like flat tax, repeal the IRS, abolish the Department of Education, all these things. They would promise them. They would show up, and then they would you know, get to work on an agenda that the Republican leadership and a lot of the business lobbyists actually wanted. And to sort of show, wave a flag back home, they would cast some vote for repealing the IRS, for instituting a flat tax, for abolishing the Department of Education. But the vote wouldn't really mean anything. It would just sort of be a symbolic vote that was never going to accomplish anything. And meanwhile, the business lobbyists and the leadership would work together to advance the actual Republican agenda, however conservative or unconservative it was. There would be subsidies, there would be uh, tax loopholes, etc. But then when the Tea Party happened, it came about with both 
increases in technology, changes in campaign finance laws, thanks to the Citizens United ruling, all of a sudden there was the ability for there to be a second source of money. This was one real important thing, that these outside groups were able to raise millions of dollars without having to go to big business. They just call your average Fox News viewer some conservative retired Republican who all of a sudden will cut you a $500 check. You get enough of these flowing through groups like Club for Growth and Senate Conservatives Fund, and all of a sudden Ted Cruz can win a primary in Texas over the guy uh, who was backed by all the businesses. Rand Paul can and he win had a and, and the guy who had, what, $10, 20000000 million of his own money to spend. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and then Rand Paul won in Kentucky in 2010, beating Trey Grayson, who was handpicked by Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, who had all the backing of the whole Republican business establishment here in town. Same thing happened. Marco Rubio beat Charlie Crist in Florida. You had Pat Toomey drive Arlen Specter out of the party. You had Mike Lee beat an incumbent senator, Bob Bennett. And all of these things happened because they're came an ability to get information and money back and forth between the grassroots and conservatives without the business lobbies and the Republican leadership uh, being the intermediary. Tim, you've written a great deal about this sort of bankruptcy, if you will, of a lot of Republican leaders who have been so tight with corporate America that they've continued to support you know, huge amounts of corporate welfare, subsidies, tax loopholes, import restrictions things that really made the playing field not level, so big business had a big advantage over small business. Yeah, and this involved abandoning the stated conservative principles to the point that a lot of conservatives actually thought pro-business and pro-free market meant the same thing, where they would defend some subsidy for a drug company by saying, oh, well, this is pro-free market because it helps a drug company. And we literally didn't understand it. And I think that the, the Tea Party and that stuff changed. And so what you got was, and both of these things will be curse words to you know, a lot of people in the center and on the left, but you traded out sort of pro-big business Republicans for free market ideologues, people who actually believed in a limited government. And this is sort of a, right now, a dysfunctional uh, machine (laughs) that's uh, creating chaos here on Capitol Hill. That was a great portrait of kind of the big picture of how we got where we are. Now let's take it up to a few weeks ago. And I know there were a lot of shifting strategies on the part of House Republican leadership. You know, first they wanted to totally defund Obamacare. Then they wanted to delay Obamacare for one year. Then they threw in the repeal of the medical device tax, the change of the um, sort of special rule. uh, And and they wanted to make sure that no lawmaker staff could benefit from any subsidies Mm -hmm. through Obamacare. So there there were a lot of shifts in Republican Party strategy. But one of the constants has been an attempt to, you know, really try to, I think, prevent Obamacare from becoming a successful program. Now, that's understandable. I think from my perspective, you look back in 1935, a lot of conservatives opposed Social Security. It turned out to be implemented and be pretty popular. 1965, a lot of conservatives opposed Medicare. Also turned out to become a a pretty popular program, you know, two major expansions of the welfare state. Obamacare is the first major expansion of the welfare state for a long time, maybe almost 50 years. Do you think this Republican strategy is sort of the underlying cause of it is a desire to prevent another popular entitlement from taking hold and benefiting Democrats in the long term? I think that some of the way you could sort of phrase that same thing in uh, in a different way is 
there's a suspicion, and and I share this suspicion that the when you start giving people subsidies, and that's what Obamacare does, that you create a sort of attitude of dependency towards the federal government. I certainly think this is true in business. I think one of the bad things about corporate welfare is not just that, and the whole lobbying network, is not just that it corrupts government, but that it corrupts business, and that businesses stop seeking to create a better product and start seeking to, you know, cozy up to government. It's a a different sort of thing on the individual level, um, but there is a fear, and I'm not sure, you know, how well this is founded, but there is a fear that if more people start taking government subsidies and the and Obamacare gives uh, insurance subsidies to middle class people, so people right now not taking government money then what you do is you start to foster a, a sense of dependency that more people start to depend on government now there's a political angle to this well, if more people are depending on government maybe they won't support tax cuts, I don't believe that argument but I know a lot of Republicans do then there's another angle which is sort of a moral argument that it's bad for the country. It's bad for the economy if people start thinking, my well-being doesn't hinge on my ability to work, but on the government keeping money my way. So that's when the government support network goes from being a, a safety net to catch people who have had really hard times or who can't take care of themselves to being sort of this helicopter mom. And I think that that definitely there's political fear about that, but also sort of a moral and economic fear of helicopter mom government. Are you a helicopter dad, Tim? I am not a helicopter dad, and I sometimes get yelled at walking through the <laughs> woods when people are like, your son is 50 feet ahead of me. Like, there are no bears in this woods. <laughs> the thing I'm most afraid of is other parents yelling at me, calling me a bad dad. So yeah, I get yelled at most frequently by my wife. Uh, They're letting your kid climb up the, yeah, the yeah. shelf for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've been in the vanguard of a lot of young uh, conservative thinkers, you, uh, Ross Douthat, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Douthat. Douthat uh, at the New York Times, Ramesh Panuru uh, at the National Review. And there's been a lot of interesting thinking coming coming out of uh, the three of you guys and some other folks as well. I know Ramesh Panuru in particular has argued that this attempt to, to, uh, to stall Obamacare, to defund it or whatever, he says it's perfectly logical. He quibbles a little bit with the tactics, like doing it through the the CR, the continuing resolution. But mm-hmm. he says, hey, you know, Democrats, liberals uh, in 2004, after the war in Iraq, they didn't all of a sudden start supporting the war. Uh, they continued opposing it. And yep. eventually the country came around to where they were. Um, Democrats in 2003 or 2004, 2005 didn't all of a sudden say, you know what, the Bush tax cuts are policy now, and so they were an okay idea. We're going to stop opposing them. They campaigned election after election on repealing those Bush tax cuts. And so he argues that it makes perfect sense to continue opposing Obamacare. What, do you agree with that? Yeah, and I'll, I'll add other examples. Uh, in Wisconsin, when majorities of the state are elected uh, a Republican governor, Scott Walker, and strong Republican majorities in the House and Senate there, and they started passing laws that they had campaigned on, the Senate, the Wisconsin Democrats didn't say, oh, well, we'll just try to, you know, vote no and hope we can win and give speeches against it. They left the state, and people filled the halls. And there was a giant, and you know what a lot of the left said was, this is what democracy looks like. It's not just 
you vote on election day and then they vote on the bills. There's involvement. There's strife. There's uh, minorities using whatever leverage they have to try to pressure the majority, to try to rally the people to pressure the majority. And I think that's what you have going on here. I agree with Ramesh that I think the idea of defunding Obamacare with the continuing resolution was a little bit of a, a muddled idea. But the idea that, oh, well, this passed into law in the Supreme Court uh, by a one-vote majority and tweaking it to pretend it was a tax said that this whole thing is, is uh, constitutional. And by the way, some parts, the constitutional challenges are still going through the courts. But the idea that, oh, this is settled law and we can't fix it, it's just sort of a, it's a silly rhetorical ploy. And, you know, politicians always use silly, silly rhetorical ploys. But for any journalist or serious commentator to take it seriously, I agree with Ramesh. It's silly. Although I think the phrase, this is settled law, I, mean, I agree it's a silly rhetorical ploy, but I think it was sort of pioneered by conservative nominees to the Supreme Court as a way to not have to talk about Roe v. Wade and still <laughs> get confirmed. talking about Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think that fighting over this law, is, especially because we've seen Obama has is, is not been implementing it in the way it was passed. So, and so, so look, if Republicans want to delay parts of it, I think that's perfectly within the bounds of, of regular old politics. So I think it's perfectly within the bounds of regular politics, too. But I think if they want to do it, then they should try to win the 2014 election so that they get the Senate back and then pass a law that does it, which Obama will veto, which then becomes the central argument of the 2016 election. Then if they win the 2016 election, they repeal it in 2017. This was the way Republicans did it in 2000, where they wanted tax cuts. And so they went ahead and they passed a tax cut bill, and Bill Clinton vetoed it. And then they t- passed each element of it. We're going to repeal the marriage penalty. Bill Clinton vetoed it. We're going to uh, lower rates for everybody. Bill Clinton vetoed it. We're going to get rid of the death tax. Bill Clinton vetoed it. And they used it as a way to run against Al Gore. Um, so that's sort of more normal order in politics. On the other hand, you look at what the Democrats did in Wisconsin, where they went to extreme extraordinary measures to try to block something they thought was extraordinarily bad and that would hurt the state and the party in the long run. And that that was not normal politics, but it was using whatever leverage the minority has in order to try to win, try to use a rare point. And here it was a threat of a government shutdown. Now, one lesson is that Scott Walker won his recall with a larger majority than he won his original uh, election. And, and, ar- so, and arguably became a national political figure and potential presidential candidate in 2016 uh, because of that. Uh, yeah, so the, so it, it it could definitely be imprudent, but and while I'm I'm a conservative guy, I don't like people doing sort of crazy things, and so when it comes to a debt ceiling where we have no idea what happens after we uh, cross the debt ceiling, I, I do not encourage fighting there. But here I say uh, I. I think they should have picked a different aspect, just a delay rather than defunding, which is some weird sort of kludgy way of doing it. Um, but so, but here's a to go back to the way the Republican Party is different today. There was this. The pattern was you said I'm going to do this, and then you cast a vote that was what Ted Cruz would call a fake vote. You voted to repeal Obamacare, knowing that the Senate was going to kill it, and so you said I voted to repeal Obamacare, but you didn't actually try to repeal Obamacare. But 
So you could say, well, we didn't have any way of doing it. But when you were running as a Republican, you said you were going to do it. So you can't just cast a vote to do it. That's like the husband would be like, I tried washing these dishes, but they just wouldn't come clean. That's the average Republican way of doing it. And that the Tea Party groups and Ted Cruz were saying, no, if you guys ran and got elected saying you were going to repeal Obamacare, well, we don't have any great chances, but here's our best chance. Let's try it. So I think it was Jonathan Chait, a liberal writer, who said, well, sort of Republicans ran promising something, and now they're uh, somebody trying to hold them to that promise. And the point might be they shouldn't have promised what they couldn't actually deliver. So are you saying my wife will be on to me if I try that line on the, dish, uh, on the dishes? now especially she'll be on to you, okay. yes. Okay, so just do the dishes. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more broadly, not just about the future of the Republican Party, but about the future of the two parties in general and uh, the prospect of, of maybe some type of new party alignment. We see Wall Street now totally you know, disillusioned with, with the Republican House because uh, Boehner seems to be kind of led around by this rump faction uh, of Tea Partiers. Mm-hmm. Do you see any possibility, um, given how well Wall Street's actually done, despite the fact that they overwhelmingly supported Romney, given how well the 1% in the financial industry have done in the Obama administration of sort of uh, kind of a reversal to what we saw briefly in 2008, where the financial industry kind of supported Democrats more than Republicans. And if so, do you see the potential for um, kind of a new alignment of a group of people? I don't want to say Occupy totally merged with the Tea Party, but just a group of people who are skeptical of big government mm-hmm. and just as skeptical of big business. Is there a possibility for like a new issue cleavage of just being the anti-big party? So if Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee in 2016, I could see the Democrats really fully becoming the party of big business and big government joined at the hip. Mm-hmm. Um, not just, I mean, there's uh, all the revolving door people who came through her campaign, who uh, came through Clint, Bill Clinton's White House and then went and became lobbyists and consultants and hedge funders and then are going to be working on her 2016 campaign and get jobs in the White House. It will be a corporatist administration uh, in a way far beyond what Obama or Bush were, is my prediction, if she were the president. If she's the nominee, you know, she will be able to sound the, the some of the standard liberal populist lines that, that everybody from Clinton and Gore to Obama and Edwards could do, but it will be Yeah, it will be shown to be hollow, whereas an, yes. Eliz- whereas an Elizabeth Warren, you know, or, or someone else who really... And that really... would be Elizabeth Warren's angle would be to run against right. Hillary as running against the banks. So if, she, if Hillary is a nominee, um, then it depends on who's... Because... I, I was writing I, my first book, The Big Ripoff, was in '06, and I was saying, you know, people believe in free markets and need to trust big, distrust big business. And then in '09, I wrote Obamanomics, saying, look, big business is the ally of Obama's big government agenda. And then in 2010, all of a sudden, you had these uh, these Rand Paul type people winning primaries, running against K Street, and the idea was catching on within the Republican Party that you would rail against corporate welfare. But then Mitt Romney got the nomination, and a lot of wind was sucked out of it. I had top Romney advisors say, it's ridiculous to say, that to point any blame at the Republic, at the big business for what's been going on, where they, they are a firm ally. So if the Republicans were to nominate a Rand Paul, or maybe, I don't know, maybe even a Scott Walker, maybe even a Bobby 
Jindal. I don't know how deep their alliances are. So you could. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't think Scott Walker uh, tilts tilts the boat meaningfully. I think he's just sort of a standard issue. I don't think he departs that much from a Mitt Romney. But it would be easy for him to at least pose as a populist because he, uh, yeah, because he took kind of like kind of like kind of like Tim kind of like Tim Pawlenty did before exactly. he before he became so, Wall Street's big lobbyist. Valenti was sort of running as a bit of a free market populist. If you had a, a Republican who could do that even semi-plausibly, and you had Hillary Clinton, you could see that. I don't see the Occupy Wall Street left, though, lining up with uh, free, even, a, even a real free market populist, even me running for president. I think that the it's too deeply ingrained in too many liberals' minds that the free market is inherently like the big, is, is in itself corporate welfare. I think that on certain issues, you can see alliances. We saw it on Audit the Fed back in 2009. We saw it on uh, Vitter Brown. Sherrod Brown is one of the two most liberal senators, is my view of it. Do you agree with that? It's Brown and uh, I mean, Warren Warren would be close. Yeah, Sanders. Brown, Warren, Sanders is how I see. Um, And then on the right, Vitter is in, you know, the five or at least seven most conservative senators. And Vitter just said, look, we're going to have bailouts if we, and these guys are already subsidized, so there's no reason we should allow them to be big and subsidized and make the bailout more likely. So there are right-left issues that can, right, issues where the right-left can ally. Although I I'd don't say, see it as a broad permanent alliance. Although I'd say two issues sort of particular to Vitter. Obviously, you know, he needs to take some like good, strong populist stands to make sure that the scandal that, that he kind of got known for for a while, you know, stays in the past and that he remains popular. So I think it's, mm-hmm. it was helpful to him for that reason. Number two, we should remember that there is a rich tradition of soak the rich populism in Louisiana politics that I think he could draw upon, you know, dating yeah. back to, to Huey Long. Um, so... Uh, but no, I think these are really interesting issues to talk about both with both parties. And I and I do agree with you that Hillary Clinton would probably represent the best opportunity for a real debate about the direction of the Democratic Party. Uh, if there's an Elizabeth Warren, you know, or, yep. or maybe uh, Martin O'Malley, you know, just someone who c- can run an anti both kind of an anti-war and run way to her left since she's been consistently, I think, one of the most hawkish voices in the Obama White House. Now, you think O'Malley could be that guy? Uh, you know, I think that um, he has the potential, but I, I'm, you know, I, I think he's a bright guy with, with, a, with a great future. I'm not sure that he would get in a primary with Hillary Clinton. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's probably more likely that a person, that anyone uh, who could beat Hillary Clinton, I, I think it's better to have a woman because I think... If it's, um, I think the historic nature of her candidacy would be, um, you know, would would draw a lot yeah. of attention and a lot of support from the biggest demographic group in the Democratic Party, you know, women. And so I think the best way to kind of offset that or to really kind of neutralize that advantage would be to do it with a woman, a woman who, um, A, has a national profile already, B, mm-hmm. has an independent fundraising base. Uh, yep. And so C wouldn't need to rely upon K Street money or Wall Street money. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I definitely think that um, there um, it, it's hard. I, it's hard to move back a generation in presidents. Yeah. You know, what I mean, we typically move forward. It's rare that we we go back and, and after we've had someone from one generation uh, go back to someone from the prior one. And so, yeah, um, I, I, I just think that uh, and Elizabeth Warren is is uh, she's not 
particularly young, but I do think she has a freshness and an authenticity and uh, would have a lot of appeal. Yeah, and I I was surprised that she got a spot on the banking committee. I would have thought that uh, the Democratic leadership would have resisted that, and they did resist it. But um, I think their willingness to uh, keep her off was limited by the fact that she has some of the most enthusiasm from the liberal base of anybody, and so that definitely uh, you know definitely made a difference and showed that she has clout, that she's analogous to Rand Paul or Mike Lee in her ability. To tap into sort of grassroots enthusiasm that doesn't necessarily exist for, you know, a Harry Reid or a Max Baucus. Absolutely. Hey, what are you working on these days, Tim? Are you, are you writing another book uh, about Obama's America? So the, uh, the next book I want to write would be called Baptists and Bootleggers, and it's about a story where it's sort of an old story that goes around free market circles of a uh, politician who needs an issue and he needs money. So he signs up with a Baptist preacher, and his issue is uh, making the county be a dry county. But to fund his campaign, who does he turn to? The state's most notorious bootlegger running illegal liquor all around the state because, heck, he profits, the bootlegger profits from the county becoming a dry county. And we get analogous situations like that all the time with... Uh, kind of like Ralph well, Reed. Remember when Ralph Reed took all the Ralph, money from exactly. the outstate casino interest to try to keep casinos out of the neighboring state? Exactly. Just sort of a, so you get the, the casinos, you get in environmental policy all the time where you're trying to build coal-fired power plants in South America, so you try to get the U.S. to reduce its coal consumption so that you drive down the price of coal and make your coal-fired power plant more profitable in, in Africa and, and South America. So I'm, I'm piecing together stories like that with the hope of turning that one into a book. Hey, I love that idea. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun to... So uh, I have one book sale. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I buy my book. Hey, I didn't say I'd buy it. I just said I like the idea. <laughs> hey, listen, Tim, I love, always love talking to you. You uh, have a lot of provocative thoughts on, uh, on, on the country and in particular the conservative movement. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to, to share your insights with us today. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for Polyoptics This Week. This is Jeff Smith, public policy professor at the New School in New York City, filling in for Josh King. Thanks so much for joining us. 